Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom. We're going to turn this week to the book of Hebrews. This is chapter 7, part 2. So we did um, look into chapter 7 last week, but more of a topical study last week. Went back to um, Genesis 14 and built forward from the Torah into the Nevim, into the prophets, particularly Psalm 110. And then we link that in with chapter 7 last week. This week, I'm going to get a bit more actually into the text of chapter 7. So we're going to start off with verse 3. Did touch on this last week, but again, this has been a great cause for confusion, the genealogy issue Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3, when you start talking about the Malkitzedic, this question often comes up, particularly as we delve into this a little more. So I want to just go into this a little further for some more clarification. Neither his Ema, his mother, or his Abba, father, are recorded in the genealogies without beginning of days, nor end of Chaim, life, but made like the son of Yahuwah, who is the one that abides as a Kohen, a priest, continually. One who abides as a Kohen, a priest, continually. And so many times we get so caught, and I'm, I'm so guilty of this over the years, I get this tunnel vision, I get so bogged down in the text And I'm just like, just obsessing over it. But then I feel the Ruach HaKodesh in me say, just stand back. And I start to realize that there's more to it than the the black fire, but there's the white fire. The space between the texts says something too. This is, the in, this is a great example of this. And I'd call it the argument of silence. Because so many times we live in a, in a, in a world where there's such a clatter of sound. Or we can be in the Bible text and we're just in the text, in the text, we're in the Strong's in concordance, we're, we're breaking everything down. But we forget that there's this spaces between the texts, what I call the white fire, or the argument of silence. The argument of silence is sometimes far louder than the voices that you hear. And that's what we need to pay attention to here. And this is a classic example of the argument of silence. Because it's actually employed by our author right here in verse 3. Because when Zedek is described as having neither mother or father without genealogy and having neither beginning of days or an end of life, it's not suggesting that he's some biological anomaly. It's not suggesting he's an angel, and it's certainly not suggesting that he's floating around in some kind of weird human guise. It's not suggesting that at all, because what we find is that Zedek belonged to a dynasty of warrior priest kings in which we know he had predecessors. We looked at that last week, and he had successors in that order. He was actually in a line, if it were. If this was the point of our author, then he would have agreed with us at once that we need to look deeper than just trying to 
find what's in the black fire. There is something else that is being spoken. What's important is the account that's given to Melchizedek that is continued throughout the Tanakh. Because remember, who's he communicating to? He's communicating to many of the Levites from the Levitical regime that had come into the faith, Acts chapter 6. To our author, the silences in Scripture are just as inspired as its statements. And in my studies over the years, I've found that to be so meaningful that if I just back up and I try to see what's in between the text, that that is just as powerful as the text itself because that's the way this wonderful book has been inspiredly written. It's the silences that can speak volumes. Because in the only record which Scripture provides of Malkitzadik is Genesis 14. Nothing is said of his parentage in Genesis 14. Nothing is said of his ancestry. Nothing is said of his progeny. Nothing is said in Genesis 14 of his birth. Nothing is said in Genesis 14 of his death. He suddenly appears, and then just as quickly as he appears, he... He disappears. And here's the key. Here's the key. In the silences, as well as in the statements, he's the fitting type of Yahusha. In the silences, as well as in the statements, he's the fitting type of Yahusha. And this is the key. He's the final Malkitzedek, Yahusha. The record by the things it says of him and by the things that it doesn't say of him have assimilated him to our author as the son of Elohim. And that's what he's communicating to the audience. That's how he's able to communicate it to the audience. Our author is trying to communicate a trans-tribal perspective to a Levitical audience that is so caught up in what? Tribal genealogies that are stated and written down. And of course, they were all destroyed in 70 of the Common Era. Nobody Nobody can prove their genealogy going back to the Levites. It was all destroyed in 70 of the Common Era. And that is what our author's communicating, this trans-tribal perspective rather than the limited, limited excuse me, earthly, carnal perspective. Especially now, as Yahushua is sitting at the right hand of Elohim, and he remains a priest in perpetuity without tribal qualification. That's the difference. Think about it for a moment. It's not the type which determines the anti-type in this instance. It's not the Malkitzedek in Genesis 14 that determines Yeshua in the brick. It's not the type that determines the antitype in this instance. In fact, it's the antitype 
which determines the type. How is that so? Because Yahusha isn't portrayed after the pattern of Melchizedek in Genesis 14. And this is where so many Christian scholars just get stuck. They just get stuck at this point. Because they're so used to type and anti-type. But it's the opposite here. It's totally different. They're not realizing that what? The Melchizedek in their heavenlies determined the type. In Genesis 14. And that is the huge paradigm shift. And you can easily just plow through the scriptures and miss that point, And then it will cause you to stumble in your interpretation of Hebrews for the rest of your life. Because Yahusha isn't portrayed after the pattern of Melchizedek in Genesis 14. As most theological Persons would assume Malkizedek in Genesis 14 is made conformable to the son of Elohim because his eternal person, Malkizedek, already existed in the heavenlies before Malkizedek came on the scene in Genesis 14. So, anti-type, Yeshua, determines type, Melchizedek Shem, in Genesis 14. And that does take pause. If you really want to think about it, it takes pause. It's only through the extra-biblical sources, like the book of Yasha, that we can piece together the identity of Melchizedek, and we discover that it is, in fact, Shem. But that's not our author's point here. That is not his point whatsoever. And how many times we can get caught up in that. But that is not his point at all. When he's communicating to his audience. Now, we did discover last week that Malkitzedek in Genesis 14 is in fact Shem. We discover that through the book of Yasher. But what's amazing here is now this newly discovered harmony. Because like Shem before him, Yahushua was transformed and transferred into the existing order and became Melchizedek as Shem before him. As seen in verse 4, where Abraham pays tithes to Shem. We also know that both Shem and the one transferred into that order are not listed in the Levitical genealogies. They're not listed in the Levitical genealogies. There's no record of any of their parents being from Levi. And what we find is since neither was a priest in the order of Levi, neither Shem nor Yahusha has a beginning of days, neither of them has an end of priestly Levitical life as far as the biblical record is concerned. Neither was ordained to begin with or end with in a Levitical order of priestly service. So this is so important because this comes up so many times whenever I talk about Malkitzedek, people bring up the question of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3. Of course, we know that both Shem and Yahusha do have genealogies lifted in Scripture. They've served, though, in an eternal order, not in the Levitical order. Now we can go on, spent a little time there, but I think it was important 
to verse 4. Now consider how great this man was. Maybe turn the audio volume down just a tad a little bit. It's very loud up here for me. Is it loud out there for you too? Yeah, there we go. Turn it down. Turn it down. There we go, I think. There we go. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Avraham gave the Ma'aser, the tithe of the best. And truly, they that are the sons of Levi who receive the office of Kohanim have a mitzvah to take the Ma'aser, the tithe from the people according to the Torah, that is, from their Israelite brothers even though they came out of the loins of Avraham, verse 6. But he whose descent is not recorded in their genealogies received the ma'aser, the tithe from Avraham, and blessed him that had the promises. And without any contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And here, mortal men receive the ma'aser, receive the tithe, but there he receives them, of whom the katuv, the scripture says, that he lives continually. And one might say that through Avraham, this is one of my favorite verses, that through Avraham, even Levi, who received the ma'aser, the tithe, gave tithe. For he was yet in the loins of his Abba, Avraham, when Malkizedek met him. He's saying that the Levitical priesthood, they paid tithes to Malkizedek through the loins of Avraham. He's communicating the lesser and the better. The lesser and the greater, he's communicating to his audience, which included the Levitical hierarchy, superiority. And that's huge. That would have been very, very controversial to his audience, especially when he got as graphic as saying that Levi paid tithes through the loins of Abraham. Now, in verse 11... If we hone into this, it says, if therefore perfection, the Greek word here for perfection is teleosis. It means to reach the goal. The goal could never be reached. The goal could never be reached through the book of the law and its priesthood. And what is the goal? If you don't know the goal, then it's going to be very hard to piece together where it is you're trying to get to, correct? Ultimately, the goal is to what? Connect back to Genesis 12, the oath of Genesis 12. But the only way that that goal can be reached is if the death penalty position of Genesis 15 is paid, that then you can connect back to it. And the only way that can be happening is not through the book of the law, which was a tutor, a schoolmaster to cover wrath, pay blood, so that Yahweh wouldn't collect the fee of needing genocide of the whole house of Israel. He would pour it out on his son. 
So we have to understand what the goal is that we're trying to reach. Otherwise, we're never going to understand the formulation of how to get there. And there comes another problem with the interpretation of the book of Hebrews. And that's why some teachers would even just throw the book of Hebrews out altogether and just chalk it up to theology and whatever out of the convenience of their lack of understanding, when really we must press on and we can see that the goal could not be reached by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people receive the law. This is huge. It states right here that the people receive the law under the Levitical priesthood. Now you have to do a little bit of addition and you would go, well, hang on a minute. When was the Levitical order, when was that birthed? When was it birthed? Well, it certainly wasn't in Exodus chapter 19. That was when you would be a whole nation of priests. That was the Malchizedek order that was brought in Exodus 19 verse 5. But then you skip forward to Exodus chapter 32 verse 26, and you find what? The sin of the golden calf. In the 26th verse, Moshe cries out and all the Levites gather towards him and they come out of the rest of the house of Israel. Then you tie that in with Numbers chapter 3 verse 41 and you see that the birth of the Levitical priesthood, Exodus 32 verse 26, Numbers chapter 3 verse, 30, um, verse 41 is none other at the golden calf breach, when, according to the book of Hebrews, the law was given. Well, what law? Exodus 24.12, the law that was added after the blood ratification of the covenant was none other than the book of the law. But you have to thread the needle, and that's the problem. This takes a little time to be able to track it all through the scripture and you have to have a good working knowledge of the Torah to be even able to build this. Did our audience have a good working knowledge of the Torah? They were priests. Many of us today, we get lost because we started in the book of John and we played around in the book of Revelation. Most probably didn't bother with the book of Revelation. They went out and bought that series of books called Left Behind. I mean, that's it in reality. I mean, you're laughing, but it's true. It's true. Well, I don't need to read the book of Revelation. I've got this Left Behind series. And now it's out on a movie form. Skip right through it, okay? And then we go back to the book of John again. It's not going to work for you. Let's look at verse 11. If therefore the goal could be reached by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. And here the Greek word is nen. How do you pronounce that? Um, Gee, let me give it a whirl here. Nenomatheotai. And it's actually the same word that's used in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6. And it means receive the law as it appears in this very verse. Now, if you go to Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6, as we will next week, you will find a classic example 
of a willful, defiant, high-handed mistranslation. Because here, the Greek word, nenomatheotai, which is translated correctly as receive the law, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, they don't want it to be translated as receive the law. Because then, the whole context of Hebrews 8, 6 changes, that in fact, Yeshua established a new covenant, which is royal law, established as Torah, just like it says here. So that is an example, a classic example of a willful, defiant translation deception. It's not a mistake. I mean, it's very easy. You just translate it the same as you did in verse 11 of chapter 7. But when they come to Hebrews 8, 6, there's no way that the institutionalized church can afford to translate it correctly because then the game's up. The shenanigans are over. And that's the problem. So you see that even in the modern translations like the NIV, they continue with the deception. There's no excuse for that mistranslation in Hebrews 8.6 based upon the fact that they did translate it properly in Hebrews 7.11. It means receive the law in both instances. What further need was there that another Kohen, another priest, should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? So this means that the law, the book of the law, was given at the golden calf breach because that's where the Levitical priesthood was born. Exodus 32, verse 26, cross-reference with Numbers chapter 3, verse 41. So that means we have to pay attention. Now when I read Hebrews 9.10, the book of the law, the law consists of carnal commandments imposed on them until the time of reformation. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor what they affirm. Be very careful. By what you teach, what are you affirming? Are you affirming the high priest of, of Yahusha? Or by what you teach and how you teach the Torah, are you affirming the high priesthood of the New World Order and the Bolsheviks? Be very careful, because that is... Our present reality. And I'm really going to try and stay focused today. I really am. But there's this burning temptation inside of me. But I am going to stay focused. But my flesh is weak. I must warn you. But the spirit is strong. But there's a battle within Matthew today. With the things that have gone on within the state of Oregon. This Back to the text. Verse 8. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor what they affirm. But we know that the law, the book of the law, is good if a man uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law, the book of the law, is not made for the Zadiks. What? The book of the law is not made for the Zadiks, for the righteous, but for the disobedient, for the wicked, for the sinners, and for Shabbat breakers. It's right there, okay? 
If you're in the Malkitzedic priesthood, the book of the law, it wasn't made for you because you're in covenant fidelity. It's for the whoremongers, the Shabbat breakers, and those that are still needing the tutor to rein them in because of their lawless spirit and lawless heart. That's what the book of the law is for. But if you're under the high priesthood of Malkitzedic, the book of the law isn't for the Zadiks. It's right there contextually backed up by absolutely bucket loads of scripture in the Brit Hadashah. But you can read and plow right through it, right? John's laughing in the back. (laughs) That's the point. The law, the book of the law is not made for the Zadiks, but for the disobedient. That was its purpose. We're not saved to go back under the book of the law mediation. We are saved to return to royal book of the covenant Torah. Galatians 2.21, for if righteousness comes by the law, the book of the law, Hebrews 7.11, then Messiah died in vain. Ephesians 2.12, that at the time ye were without Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, And strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without Elohim in the world. The importance of that statement, you would have at least thought why we were drinking milk in the church, that every sermon would have been about the covenants of promise. Because it seems that that's extremely important. How many of you, hands up, heard about the covenants of promise when you were in the institutionalized church? I never did. But this is New Testament. And even if your New Testament book of John forward only, you should have heard about this very important thing called the covenants of promise because you're supposed to be in the commonwealth of Israel and you don't want to be strangers to these covenants of promise. But we never heard about it, did we? You see, the salvation covenants of promise, Ephesians 2.12, are not part of Torah law, Galatians 3.18, in any Bible, not even in the NIV. Galatians 3.10, for as many as are the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law, book of the law, in the sight of Yahuwah, it is evident. For the just shall live by covenant, faith, faithfulness to the covenant. And the law is not of faith. The book of the law was not of faith. They never agreed to it. The book of the covenant was that of faith. All that you have said we will do, that's faith. The book of the law was not of faith. It was imposed upon them without agreement. It was do or die. And that's what the author, Paul, in this instance, is communicating. And the book of the law, the law in context, the book of the law is not of faith. But the man that doth them shall live, doeth them shall live in them. Messiah had redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written... Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Yahushua Messiah. 
So what you have to understand, when I am not taking liberty, when I use the book of the law in these verses, when it says law, because it's backed up verses earlier in Galatians 3.10 with the very word, book of the law, which is then framed in verse 14 by the blessings of Abraham. And the blessings of Abraham are a contradiction to the book of the law, right? So the whole context of this is faithfulness to the covenant brings blessing. Book of the law brings curses and mediation until the time of reformation. Hebrews 7.12, for the priesthood being changed or transferred, there is made a necessity, a change in the Torah. You see, both priesthoods, the author's communicating, both of them are in the Torah. Both laws are Torah law, but one is the higher Malkizedic law, the other is the lower Levitical law. And that's why he's talking here, and he opens up the chapter with superiority. And a great example of that is how Levi paid tithes through the loins of Abraham. So it's all about superiority that needs to be communicated to his audience. 2 Corinthians 3.11, if that which is done away with was glorious... How much more that which remains is glorious. And then in Galatians 3.19. Wherefore then serveth the law. The book of the law. Context verse 10. It was added because of transgressions. Until the seed Moshiach should come. To whom the promise was made. So hopefully you can see now the whole context of what we've been talking about for the past year or so really is framed here in chapter 7. That's why I wanted to do a part 1 and a part 2 and get into it a little bit deeper. Hebrews 7 verse 13. For he of whom these things are spoken of pertains to another tribe of which no man ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our master sprang out of Yehuda, Judah, of which tribe Moshe said nothing, nothing concerning the priesthood. And yet it is clearer that after the likeness of Malkitzedek, there arises another Kohen, another priest, who is not appointed by the law of carnal commandments, but by the power of, Of an endless life. Levi was appointed by the carnal commandments that were contained in the book of the law. Why were they carnal? Because their flesh was about to be incinerated because of the golden calf breach. It was because of their carnality that the the commandments were imposed upon them. They were carnal commandments that were imposed upon them until the time of reformation when the seed would come. For he testifies, you, verse 17, you are a Kohen, a priest, Leolam Vayed, forever and ever, after the order of Malkizedek. For there is truly, truly an annulling of the former 
book of the law command because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Now, the Greek word here for disannulling, it actually does mean to abolish. Now, the Hebrew roots will do all kinds of mental gymnastics, myself included, back in the day, because you, this was used as a charge by the institutional church that you could be lawless. That the law's done away with the whole of the Torah's carnal. So... The Hebrew Roots community would come up and do mental gymnastics and scriptural gymnastics to try and prove, well, myself included, well, it doesn't mean annulling. Well, actually, it does. But now we understand that we are to rightly divide the word of truth, that it is not the annulling of the whole of the Torah, but it is an annulling of the carnal commandments that were imposed until the time of Reformation because we are the children of Abraham, we're not the children of Aaron, which is the whole context of Galatians. Not the children of Aaron, you're the children of Abraham because he was the one that was faithful to the covenant. So right here, what we find is this Greek word for disannulling. It does, in fact, mean to abolish because it's the same word that's used in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, where the author talks away about the putting away, the abolishment of sin in Hebrews 9, 26. Just as Messiah's death put away or abolished sin... In the same way, his death put away or abolishes the book of the law. Does that make sense? It's the same. Hebrews 9.26 is the same word. So it can't mean one thing in one and then another in another because we're trying to defend the turf that we've stuck the flag in. And I, I, I admit that I was guilty of that too because you're trying to make sense of the scripture because you know that you're not given to lawlessness. But you know what? Praise Yahweh that maturity comes and I just spend more and we spend more. We grow. We don't just arrive at a plateau and say, this is it. I know it all. And then you don't grow anymore. We should be forever changing, but moving towards a goal. And that's what's so unique about this ministry. And Brother John and Brother Steve will tell you, many of the people that contact us from all over the world, is that what do you say to them? To share the testimony and continue to explore the Scriptures. We're not threatened to explore the name of Yahuwah. We're not putting a flag in the ground and say, we know it all. I certainly don't. But we know that we're ready to learn and explore and delve more into these things because we're pursuing truth. And we don't have some ground that we have to defend because we're not a denomination. We're a priesthood, which is freedom. Freedom is the Malkitetic way. So we can see, continuing on right now, that this word does mean to abolish. It's the same word used in Hebrews 9.26 for the putting away of sin. So just as Messiah's death put away sin in the same way, his death puts away the book of the law. The book of the law is set aside for two reasons. Number one, because of its weakness. It was weak in that it couldn't impart strength to the man to fulfill the covenant, could it? It could not impart strength for man to fulfill the covenant. All it could do 
was control the damage that happened at the golden calf breach and control and suppress the wrath of Yahweh by the shedding of animal blood so that he wouldn't slaughter all of Israel. That's all it was designed to do and then keep them in the fence until the Savior could come and actually deliver them. But that was all it was designed to do, was literally to withhold the wrath. And then for Yahweh's wrath to be held, he needed blood to be shed to pay the interest until Mashiach could come and pay the whole debt. Does that make sense? So number two, it could never redeem man from the covenant infraction of the golden calf and pay the death penalty possession position, excuse me, of Genesis 14. The book of the law could never do that, even with all that sacrificial blood. This is a clear statement that the book of the law had to be put away. This was essential for Yahushua to be allowed to function in the new priesthood. Because if the book of the law was still in effect, he wouldn't be able to be a priest, would he? He wouldn't be able to be the high priest. He could only be the high priest if the book of the law had been abolished. You cannot have it both ways. That's double talk. It's double talk. You're talking out of the side of your mouth. It's no different when the institutionalized church says, yes, Jesus is the same today, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Sabbath is a principle. It's no longer a commandment. What? You just said he's the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. Well, but there's, it's double talk. And anyone with a bit of intellect is not going to see, is going to see through that stuff. It's theological gymnastics. And it sounds good because it appeals to my flesh. But it's not true. But notice it always appeals to your flesh. And the, that's what it is. We are living in a carnal realm. And we have to overcome the carnality by putting to death the flesh, crucifying the flesh, as Paul says. Let's go into verse 19. For the Torah, now the book of the law, when it's saying the law here, the book of the law is in view. The book of the law, the law made nothing perfect. It didn't reach the goal. But the bringing in of a better tikvah, a better hope did, through which we draw near to Yahweh. And he confirmed it to us by an oath. This is the trifecta. This is the, the triple oath. We've got the oath of Genesis 12. Then we have the testimony in the, the um, Psalm 110. That oath. And then finally, we have the oath of Leviticus 5, which is realized in Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, when Yahushua is before Caiaphas, and Caiaphas puts him under the oath. We've got the trifecta of the oath right here. It's fabulous. Genesis 12, Psalm 110, verse 4, Leviticus 5, realized in Matthew 26, verse 63. For those Kohanim, those priests, they were made without an oath. But we've got the trifecta of the oath here confirming a triple witness. Triple witness. But the Levitical, no oath, none at all, no witness. 
Just carnality. Just carnality. For the Kohanim were made without an oath, but this one with an oath by him that said to him, the master Yahweh swore and will not relent. You are a Kohen, Leolam Vayed, after the order of Malkizedek. He's referencing, of course, the Psalm 110 verse 4 oath here. But the oath Yahushua was made a guarantor of a better covenant. How is it better? Because it's conditional. No, because it's unconditional. That's why it's better. And the only unconditional covenant that this unconditional covenant can connect you to is Genesis 12. But he had to pay the conditional arm of Genesis 15 for us to get there. And they truly were many Kohanim because they were not allowed to continue by reason of their death. So now the author is showing you the inferiority of the Levitical priesthood because they died. They died. You had to have one after another, one after another. But this man, because he is immortal, has an unchangeable priesthood as opposed to the changeable Referencing, of course, Genesis 49.10, the until change, the changeable Levitical priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come to Yahuwah through him, seeing he lives, leolam vayed, forever and ever, to make intercession for them. As opposed to the Levitical regime, how often would the Levitical regime make intercession for the people? Once a year at Yom Kippur. This is huge to them. This is what was drawing them out. This, we, can, we can look over this and we can give it a cursory glance. But you go to Acts chapter 6 and realize the Levitical regime, they were leaving the temple and following the Messiah and the new covenant priesthood based upon these very arguments. Plus, you have to understand the corruption that was going on at the time, and we are sitting in the very same tinderbox as them. Their land was being stolen. They were having the foreign, the government had been sold out to the globalists. They had. The priesthood had been sold out to the globalists, those Romans that had come in. They were in the same position as we are in today. While we were sleeping and watching baseball and eating apple pie, our country got taken over by pirates. And while they were sleeping and eating challah and doing gymnastics in the Jerusalem gymnasium trying to hide their foreskin, guess what? They got sold out to the globalists too. They did. Verse 26. Well, I just read verse 25. There's two things, before I go on into verse 26, there's two things that are stated about this new priesthood. Number one, the new priesthood is unchangeable, verses 20 to 22. Why? Because of the immutable oath of Psalm 110, which harkens back to the inception oath of Genesis 12. The Aaronic priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, in comparison, 
It had no oath. There was no oath at all. Again, this emphasizes what? Superiority. And number two, the new priesthood is uninterrupted. Yahushua's priesthood is uninterrupted, verses 23 through 25. Death, on the other hand, prevented the Aaronic priesthood from continuing. However, Yahushua abides forever, one high priest in contrast to the many. Again, superiority. For such a Kohen Haggadah, such a high priest, became fully fit for us, who is Kadosh, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the Shamaim, the heavens, who need not daily, as those Kohanim Gedolim, to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. For this one he did once, when he offered up himself, For the law makes men koanim gedolim, who have human weakness. But the word of the oath, Psalm 110, which was after the law, appointed the son who has been perfected, leolam vayed. Now he's getting into three major comparisons. Now the first major comparison is verses 1 through 3. It's between the Malkit Zedek in the Torah to Yahusha in the Brit. So the first major comparison is the Malkit Zedek in the Torah to Yahusha in the Brit. Now you're going to find six similarities. Six similarities. I'll list them. Number one, Malkit Zedek was a priest king of the Jebusite dynasty. Number two, Malkit Zedek the Malkitzedic priesthood issued a blessing, issued a blessing. Whereas the Levitical priesthood issued what? Curses, multiple, big difference. Number three, the giving and receiving of tithes pointed to the superiority of Malkitzedic over any other king or priesthood. You see, with the Malkit Zedek, you give a tenth of all, but within the Levitical, it was dished out and they were only given a portion. Big difference. Big difference with the tithes. Number four, Malkit Zedek was an independent high priest, as was Yahusha. What does that mean? He was independent of genealogy. He didn't need genealogy, and he didn't need a scriptural record, unlike the Levitical regime. Number five, the priesthood is timeless, verses 25, unlike the Levitical priesthood that had a time limit to it. And finally, the sixth similarity we see is the priesthood was all-inclusive and ministered to all. It was universal. We saw that in our Isaiah 51 teaching. Whereas the Levitical was a limited ministry and it was only national in scope. It wasn't universal or global. Now, I want to spend a moment on this because people have come to me over the past year and says, well... Malkitzedek in Genesis 14 is a theopony. It's really Jesus. It's Christ in Genesis 14. Have you ever heard that before? 
It's a theopony. You know? So I've got to address the theopony thing because it's kind of wild if you actually start to break it down. So let's just do that just for institutionalized church fun. I don't mean to mock, but I am. There can't be a theopony in Genesis 14 for five bloody reasons. Let's just go through them and be done with it. Number one, in the text, the author doesn't use an adjective that would describe Melchizedek in his being an essence to like the son of Elohim. Instead, in the Greek, he uses a parsiple. And its meaning, Yahusha, was similar to Melchizedek, only in likeness recorded in the biblical text. There's the distinction. Number two, our author states Melchizedek was like the son of Elohim. The text doesn't say he was the son of Elohim. I know it seems small, but it's kind of important. Number three, Psalm 110, which is quoted in our text, distinguishes Melchizedek from Moshiach. Number four, Hebrews 5.1, one of the prerequisites for the priesthood was that the priest had to be fleshly. The high priest, Hebrews 5.1, had to be fleshly. And Yahushua didn't put on flesh until when? The incarnation. And number five, in the Tanakh, Theopanes appear and then they disappear. They don't hold some long-term office. I mean, they, they don't. They just, you know, well, here's a Theopany that's appointed as a judge and is going to hold a long-term office. No, they appear and then they disappear. Melchizedek in the Torah was a king of the city-state of Jerusalem, which required what? It required a position and permanent residency. So now we've got a theopony with permanent residency. I mean, it's ludicrous. But 2,000 years of tradition, and we've got Genesis 14 theopony. But if the, the, the text just does not allow it. But then again... Maybe people aren't in the text enough. Theopanies never hold a position. They were always very brief, temporary manifestations. Look at Genesis 18. That's a theopany with Abraham. How about Genesis 32? Yaakov, what's he doing? He's wrestling. Right? What about Joshua in Joshua 5? What about Judges 13? They appear, they disappear. They do not hold a governmental position and they are not permanent residents in a city-state. I mean, that one is the real apex for me. It's not a theopony. So anyway, hopefully that answers and put that one to bed. The second comparison, getting back to verses 4 through 10, is between the order of Melchizedek and the order of Aaron. And it, again, it's the superiority of Melchizedek over the Levitical priesthood. And we're going to see it come up now in four different ways. The superiority of Melchizedek over the, the Levitical in four different ways. Number one, Melchizedek accepted tithes, a tenth of all, from a kingly patriarch. Whereas Levites get this small portion that was allotted out and divided amongst others. It was divided out to others, and then they got their allotted portion. The blessing, number two, 
The blesser is always superior to the one being blessed. The lesser is blessed by the greater. And number three, the Aaronic priesthood was administered by dying men. When a priest died, he no longer received tithes, whereas Melchizedek represents the living, not the dying. And number four, Melchizedek accepted tithes from Abraham in whose loins was Levi. In essence, Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek through loins of Abraham. And now we're going to get into the third comparison, which is verses 11 through 25. Number one, we're going to see this comparison between the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of Yahushua with three key points. Number one, the Levitical priesthood could never perfect the worshiper. Could never perfect the worshiper. The Greek word perfection, it means bring to maturity. It could never be brought to maturity through the Levitical priesthood. And number two, the old priesthood was transitionary and it was changeable. And number three, There was no perfection with the Levitical regime. You see that in verse 11. That means there was no spiritual maturity. It was never attainable through the Levitical regime. The real issue here is of bringing into perfection that which is in view. Isn't that what our hope is? That he would bring us all into perfection so that we could be with him forever? But that means that I have to move from who I am presently and be on a journey towards perfection. What's the point in being on a journey if you can never get to perfection because you're following the wrong priesthood and the wrong high priest? That's going to leave you short. When you get to the end of the journey, you'll find that it was never designed that way anyway. And that's the heartbreaking issue here. Many people get on the wrong track and, follow, and by the time they get to the end, they realize it was never designed that way anyway. So we can see that it's about bringing into perfection that the author is bringing into view to his audience. Yahweh never did intend, never. He never did intend for perfection to come through the Levitical priesthood. He intended that the Levitical priesthood would manage and tutor the nation until the time of Reformation when the seed would come to usher in a return to covenant Torah and a return to covenant priesthood. There's an inseparable connection between the book of the law and the Levitical priesthood. There is an inseparable connection between the book of the law and the Levitical priesthood. For one, listen, for one to be done away with, it would also require what? That the other be done away with too. It was in conjunction with the book of the law that the Levitical priesthood had been established. And once our Malkitzedek Yahusha ushers in the new covenant, and the Malkitzedek writes, then what? There is a disannulling of the former former carnal commandments, verse 16, and a return to covenant Torah. The very 
prediction of another priesthood in Psalm 110 meant that the Aaronic priesthood was changeable. Otherwise, why would there have been a prediction of another priesthood in Psalm 110? But it's there, and it's referenced again and again by our author. So this whole chapter, chapter 7, I mean, it's amazing, but it can truly be summarized in 10 simple points. In 10 simple points. Number one, Yahusha represents all. His priesthood is universal in scope, whereas Aaron represented Israel, and it was limited and only national in scope. Number two, Aaron was only a priest, but Yahusha is a king and a priest. Number three, the Aaronic priesthood dealt with sin and judgment. Yahusha's priesthood is characterized by righteousness and peace. And number four, Yahusha didn't inherit or pass on his high priesthood, whereas Aaron did. Many people don't realize, but there were 83 high priests from the time of Aaron all the way to the destruction of the temple in 70 of the common era. They died and then another one was brought. And they died and another one was brought. They were limited by an earthly carnal life. 83 high priests from Aaron to the fall of the temple in 70 of the common era. And number five, Aaron's priesthood is tribal. It's tribal, which means it's limited. Yahusha's priesthood is trans-tribal and all-encompassing in scope. It doesn't belong to any tribe, but to those who are the called. Those who are the called are the children of El Elyon. And that's it. You are the called. And thus, you are the children of El Elyon. Number six, Aaron's priesthood kept the people under guard in a state of infancy, whereas Yahusha, through the Malkitzedek, brings us to maturity. And number seven, the ministry of Yahusha brings blessing, whereas Aaron's ministry brought forth that which was weak and unprofitable, and it brought forth what? Curses. Multiple, multiple curses. Number eight, the Aaronic priesthood was based upon the book of the law, which was administered by dying men. It was limited. And Yahusha's priesthood is based upon covenant Torah and an endless life. And number nine, the Malkitzedek is based upon a sinless priest. The Aaronic is based upon a sinful priest who before he could do anything had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. And finally, number 10, in the language of the apocalypse, (laughs) and you knew I had to do this, and I save it to last. And brother, if you want to shut off the feed, you can. But um, I do think it's important to speak and address things when, when you see them because we really do need to be awake. But the tenth thing, 
in the language of the apocalypse, is as the lamb once slain that he exercises world dominion from the heavenly throne. And that's the key. Yahushua, now once slain, he exercises world dominion from the heavenly throne. Ultimately, you'll see that he will exercise that world dominion even over the new world order. But timing is everything. He'll exercise that worldly dominion even over the global elites. Hillary knows that her days on earth are numbered. She knows that her days on earth are numbered. As her throat becomes a rotting grave and it's swallowing her unto death. (coughs) I mean, how many times? It truly is. Truly is. But this, this chapter... Seven teaches us ultimately, I believe, that we need to be focused on the highest order of the Malkitzedic and not become embattled and engaged in all that is going on in the carnal realm. But we should be aware of it. We should be aware of it. And as our audience, as our audience was very aware of the things that were happening in their day, and Yahushua addressed the things that were happening in their day. He didn't just pretend that everything was peaceful, but he always pointed them to the highest order and not to join a mob judgment. But that doesn't mean that you don't address what's going on. So because of time, I won't be very long on this, but I do want to address it. But remember, we always serve the highest heavenly order, and we wait for the master to bring in his sovereign realm in this world. We don't have to join a mob judgment. We don't have to do what they did in eastern Oregon because we have this perspective But that doesn't mean that we don't address the criminality and the illegality of it because we do need to be a people that is aware of our present circumstances. So if you'll let me just for five minutes, a few things that I do want to address. Many of you will be used to, um, familiar with it, but we do live in Oregon. um, They just cleared out that um, wild reserve just a few days ago. But it's ultimately about the undermining of the United States Constitution. I was having this conversation with my my wife last night, and we were talking about um, we we're talking about Germany, the Versailles Treaty, the Bolsheviks. You know, just the normal things I like to talk about on Erev Shabbat. <laughs> and um, I, I got I, I started to talk about the presidents and whatnot. And many people don't realize that. You know, the reason that Lincoln was shot, because he saw the dangers. He saw the dangers that were happening within this country. And that was only the latter part of the 19th century. That Lincoln was shot because he saw the dangers. And he wanted to get out from underneath the bankers. 
That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to get out from underneath the bankers. And these were the very same bankers that fomented the Bolshevik revolution less than half a century later. And that's what people don't realize. You see, the United States is a corporation that's based upon the city of London, financial institutions in England, and upon the city of London district. What happened to the idea in America that common law judges would operate under the postmaster general? What happened to that idea? That was an American idea where common law judges would operate under the postmaster general. But Americans aren't even aware of that today. Who's able in this fallen world to even point out the actions of the Bureau of Land Management with hired mercenaries posing as the FBI overriding the jurisdiction of local sheriffs and law enforcement personnel right here within our, our own state without fear of reprisal. Yet we've got all these politicians and talking heads. How many of you are sick of all the political presidential candidates? And the one thing that they should be talking about, what happened here in Oregon, is the one thing that nobody's talking about. I would tune in if they actually spoke about something of importance. What just happened in Oregon? What happened here was for the purpose of undermining the American view of government and law. Many people don't realize the illegal actions of the BLM and the unconstitutionality of just what happened over the past month here. And that does need to be talked about, but people are afraid to talk about it. And like I say, if you choose to cut the stream, I don't care. I mean, but I'll talk to you guys about it. Because the reality is that we, I, I thought I was coming over here all those years ago to get out from what I saw in my home country with a political elite, which I'm very familiar with. Some of you know my story. I'm very familiar with the political elite. I thought that coming over here, I'd come over to the Wild West. And you know, freedom and America and baseball and apple pie. But the reality of it is, is that just as I was back in the UK, you Americans over here are British crown subjects and have been for almost 100 years. And you don't realize that. You are British crown subjects. The British crown, though, isn't... We're not talking the Queen of England. You see, the British crown is a commercial investment outfit. It's a commercial investment corporation that has pirated American land assets and put them into the international banker's jurisdiction. That jurisdiction, of course, is what? Common law? No. Maritime law. Put them in the jurisdiction of maritime law where they're able to do what? Pillage our workforce and our national resources whilst you are all watching baseball and eating apple pie. 
And that's what it's about. Pillaging the workforce and stealing the American people's natural resources. Of course, they could never have done any of this without the assistance of the American Bar Association and the IRS acting as what? Licensed privateers. That's what it is. We've let the wolf into the hen house while we were sleeping. These organizations aren't our friends and they don't benefit the American people. We're the victims of what? You had your wallet stolen. It's identity theft. You're the victims of identity theft and they've involved us in their own private bankruptcies and, and have us as sureties obligated to pay their debts to what? The international bankers. America has found itself in the very same position. Listen, America, and this is frightening, and you, you will understand what I'm saying. America today has found itself in the very same position, the identical position of Germany crippled under the Versailles Treaty with its workforce and its natural resources being plundered and sold off to pay the debts of the corporation that runs the country. We are in the exact, the exact same historical situation as Germany as they were crippled under the illegality of the Versailles Treaty, which was a crime lauded upon the German people by the French and the British. You see, because I belong to a kingdom that is not of this world, I can speak out because I understand that we do not belong to the nations of the world. We belong to another kingdom. And it gives you freedom to speak truth in clarity. These organizations have committed fraud against us, defrauding us of our property, including our land patents, our bank accounts, and our organic natural man status. They want to take that away from you now. They want to take away your natural organic man status. Do you realize that? They've taken over the government and now they use international jurisdiction of the sea to commit their crimes unchallenged. They are the corporation pirates with names like the BLM, the US Department of Agriculture, and so on. Just like the IRS and the Federal Reserve, they're not actual units of the American government. They're foreign corporations whose only business is to provide us with essential government services. That's what they're to do. Their only business was to provide you, the American people, with essential government services. The land patents, the land patents, excuse me, to the Western states are owned by the states of America and the Native American governments only. That's the distinction. Can we be real? Seriously? The only land ownership, the only land ownership belonging to the federal United States which is doing business as DBA, the District of Columbia Municipal Corporation, is the 10 
square miles of the district of Columbia and its limited boundary stones. That's truth. That's it. That's it. That's reality. But it is burdened under so much pirateering that people, it goes unchallenged. The only ownership vested in the federal government in these western states or anywhere else is a lease interest in facilities that have been provided to expedite their service missions. That's it. The BLM land here in Oregon was bought and paid for by the people of this country for the use of the BLM with the understanding that the BLM is a unit of the American government and working what? In good faith for the people and for the nation. It's a good faith trust relationship. But if you look into the public and private records, the BLM is not part of our lawful government and hasn't been for decades. It hasn't been for decades. It's a privately owned foreign governmental services corporation. While you were sleeping. While you were sleeping. It's operating under the color of law, meaning it has no business interfering in the activities of ranchers and farmers. It's occupying government facilities under conditions of fraud or otherwise presenting false claims of interest, ownership, or authority. And that's the issue that nobody's talking about. That's the issue that nobody's talking about. It's the same issue that nobody talked about in Germany. Nobody talked about it whilst they were being plundered under the Versailles Treaty and the illegality of it. The BLM employees are operating as undeclared commercial mercenaries under color of law and against the best interests of their employers and benefactors, you, the people. You see, what's up is down and what's black is white. Any federal employee offering to harm or interfere in the normal occupations of their employers, you the people, that is the people of this country, or to prohibit their employers' customary use of land and its resources, like fishing, like hunting, they are heir to and acting as an outlaw in contempt to the public law and the actual constitution. And they're subject, this is crazy, they're actually, if you read the constitution, they are subject to arrest under the bounty hunter provisions of the United States statutes at large. Do you realize that? They're subject to arrest under the bounty hunter provisions in the law. Because you, the people, have employed them. You are their employers. And they are exercising an interest based upon mutual trust. But once that trust is broken with the employer, the employer has the right to do what? Terminate their employment. 
You see, being employed by the BLM is no different than being employed by Walmart. And it confers no special authority. It doesn't. It grants no immunity, and it's not a license to undertake any activity that would otherwise be unlawful. You can't just start doing unlawful things because you work for the BLM or for the Federal Reserve or for the IRS. You just can't start doing unlawful things. That's why the IRS got in trouble for looking into Christian bank accounts and only Christian, because that's illegal. That's not right. You can't do that type of thing. You can't trespass on private property. You can't make fraudulent claims. And you can't racketeer under armed force. The rule of federal employees and law enforcement officials, including federal, state, and federal county officials, is that you can't, if you can't do it in your own private capacity, then you can't do it at all. This is not a country of the corporation, by the corporation, for the corporation. The highest law officer in this country is what? The county sheriff. He is the, the highest law officer in this country is the county sheriff who has accepted the public office, received a bond, and taken his oath. He's enabled to deputize as many men as he needs to enforce the public law within the borders of his county, and he may, may require the use of any and all equipment and facilities paid for with public funds to be able to complete his job and the pursuit of his tasks. He works directly for the people of his county, and he is accountable only to them. You see, all federal employees are, f are guests of the people of each county and state so long as they pursue their lawful duties and do not inappropriately presume upon, threaten, harass, or otherwise offer to harm their hosts or overreach their lawful jurisdiction. And that's where we're at. What we've had here is false claims have been levied against land assets. They're owned by the people. These are false claims. And then it's brought on all of this conduct and support. But the moment they breach the peace, break the public law, or offer contempt against the Constitution and engage in operations under color of law, which would include trespass on private property, cattle rustling, arm racketeering, and so on, they are subject to arrest just like any other common felon. Just like any... You couldn't do that stuff, right? even if you did work for Walmart, right? You see, the American people have forgotten that they're the employers, that they're the benefactors and the priority creditors of all federal corporations, all federal employees, all federal contractors, and all federal officials. The people didn't grant their hirelings any power to harass them, indebt them, mischaracterize them, change their political status, seize upon their property, defraud them, trespass upon them, or engage in any other criminal activity, did they? They didn't. These corporations, they don't respect constitutional law and the law of states where the burning of barns 
It's still arson. The theft and removal of livestock, it's still cattle rustling. The bringing of false claims of indebtedness and obligation is still fraud. The presentation of weapons, especially tactical weapons, employed in any of these activities is assault and attempted racketeering under force by an undeclared mercenary force. And that's what you have. All the time walking over the legal entity of the county sheriff and his deputies. And that's what's so troubling for many of you that are waking up and seeing that this has happened whilst you were sleeping. It's easy to recognize that these are crimes masquerading as law enforcement. And now Christian Americans, family men, are being slaughtered under the watchful eye of mercenary drones which are void of audio so that you can't sync the video and the audio and condemn them for the crime because you've got no audio and video sync by the mercenary drone. And this is the reality that you and I live in. And it's so easy just to go, oh, that happened last week. But remember, what happened in the past, if you don't address it, will happen in the future. The reason I wanted to spend this five minutes is because I truly, truly am convinced by my reading of history that we are in the exact, exact same situation of Germany when they were crippled under the Versailles Treaty. We had an opportunity to beat the banksters, to beat the mercenaries. But the Bolshevik revolution that happened in Russia that spilled over into Germany and Ukraine and which the Allies were deceived by the Bolsheviks in New York, in Wall Street, in the city of London. Now, what should have been done a hundred and five years ago, we are now stuck with the consequences today. So it gives pause for our reality, just as with the writer of the book of Hebrews, what they should have dealt with 100 years prior, 200 years prior, in fact, 240 years prior, with the overthrow of their government and their political system with the Hasmoneans, what they didn't address, it caught up to them. And I am afraid that what we didn't address in 1918 is now caught up with us because the ones that shot Lincoln, the ones that shot Kennedy, are none other than the rebranded Bolsheviks that started the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia that spilled over into Ukraine, Germany, and Poland. But we haven't been taught what really happened and now we are left with the consequences because America has been hijacked. Much pause to think, but I am so thankful that we have the word of Yahweh and that we are not of this world and we can have a kingdom perspective. But remember, all above all, Exodus 21, do not join a mob. 
because it's not our battle, but we are to go and proclaim the message of the Master, which is a higher order, which will give us pause and give us witness in these times when people's faith will be crippled and their bellies will be empty.